electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Jamie Dimon speaks. I was like, wow, he's talking about business and rates and the economy. The J.P. Morgan CEO's annual letter to shareholders. He writes a long letter every year. This is one of the meatiest I've ever seen and goes through a lot, a lot of issues. Diamond's messages about corporations, China, and the roaring 20s yet to come. 66 pages, but you're not going to go over every page in your, in, in your interpretation, are you, Andrew? There's a lot more. And vaccine requirement, passport, or verification. It's all in the branding, says pollster Frank Luntz. Language in this case matters, and look, the right language is the difference between getting vaccinated and not getting vaccinated. Frankly, it's the difference between life and death. Plus, Coinbase's IPO, makeup tips, and Kim Kardashian. And the world's richest man is okay with a corporate tax hike. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said he supports raising the corporate tax rate because it does nothing to his company. It's Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Dorkin, along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. First up today on the podcast, Jamie Dimon has a few things to say. J.P. Morgan Chase's high-profile CEO released his annual shareholder letter today, and he's bullish for 66 pages. The long-serving head of one of the biggest banks in the United States sees a booming American economy in the next few years. For a close read, very close read, of Jamie Dimon's annual letter, here's Andrew. He's saying this boom could easily run into 2023 because of all of the spending that could extend well into 2023. He then goes on to talk about stocks. He says, while equity valuations are quite high by almost all measures except interest rates, historically a multi-year booming economy could justify their current price. He also goes on to say that QE and deficit spending response to the COVID-19 pandemic is of a completely different magnitude and without some of the offsetting drags that trailed the Great Recession as he tried to make a differentiation between what's happened now during COVID uh, and what happened back in 2008. Uh, Diamond said he sees some froth and speculation in parts of the market, but he didn't specify exactly where. However, uh, he did say conversely, this boom scenario, it's hard to justify the price of U.S. debt. Most people consider the 10-year bond as the key reference point. This is because of two factors. First, the huge supply of debt that needs to be absorbed. And second, the not unreasonable possibility that an increase in inflation will not be just temporary. So two sides of a coin there. A diamond noting extensive competition from Silicon Valley as well. This was actually the most stark thing I actually read it in the report. He effectively says that Silicon Valley is coming to eat the lunch of Wall Street and then talks about the regulatory uh, impact of that. He says banks already compete against a large and powerful shadow banking system, and they're facing extensive competition from Silicon Valley, both in the form of fintechs and big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, 
And now Walmart, he adds Walmart in there for good measure. Uh, that is here to stay, he says. As the importance of cloud AI and digital platforms grow, this competition will become even more formidable. As a result, he says, banks are playing an increasingly smaller role in the financial system. And then he goes on for several pages to talk about the regulatory impact of that and perhaps how regula regulators have hamstrung Wall Street in terms of their ability to compete and whether effectively the fintechs in Silicon Valley should be regulated as well. Meantime, uh, Diamond makes some, some pretty, pretty big proclamations about uh, policy, uh, both here in the United States and f in foreign relations as well. Uh, here's his warning uh, that he says, quote, China's leaders believe that America is in decline. I think this part of the letter may get a lot of attention. He says, the Chinese see in America that is losing ground in technology, infrastructure, and education, a nation torn and crippled by politics, as well as racial and income equality, income inequality, and a country unable to coordinate government policies, fiscal, monetary, industrial, regulatory, in any coherent way to accomplish national goals. Unfortunately, recently, there is a lot of truth to this. He then goes on to lay out a plan, might be described as the Diamond Plan, which includes a Marshall Plan of sorts, uh, about how to try to uh, uh, effectively <laughs> prevent that from happening. But it's a fascinating letter, 66 pages. We're going through uh, all of it. Uh, there's a whole uh, section, by the way, that relates to salt taxes, but uh, so much in this. It's probably the meatiest of, you know, he writes a long letter every year. This is one of the meatiest I've ever seen and goes through a lot, a lot of issues. I mean, just jumping back, the two things I think that jump out the most are, are, are the China forum relations that you just mentioned. Love to hear more about the salt. But just what you said in terms of the regulatory oversight, um, you could look at that and say, OK, he, he wants everybody else to have the same sort of equal regulation so that he's not at a disadvantage. But I think it's probably fair to say that the, the diamond pretty regularly looks at these things from a broad base. And if he thinks that there is a substantial portion of the financial system that is not being regulated at this point, he might see that, I would guess, as, as a concerning place where you could see some major problems that could eventually do what all of this regulation was supposed to keep from happening. You know, the too big to fail situation where you make sure we know where the risk is and you make sure that you monitor that risk. If there is a substantial amount of banking and a substantial amount of the financial industry that is now not part of that regulatory overview, that, that would be a warning about potential problems that could come up and kind of that's, take down the that's system. That's part of his analysis, but it's, it, so part of his analysis is that there's gonna, there is this, this, this existential risk that's outside of the banks, and that's true. But part of the analysis, I think, is that he thinks that the banking system is better positioned and has better safeguards to be able to do a lot of what fintech is doing and do it better and do it with less risk. That's, that's a huge part uh, of the argument he makes. He also, in some ways, is calling for a little bit of a let up on some of the capital requirements and other things that are going on in the banking business with the argument that it's unproductive, it's an unproductive use of capital. That he actually goes on, there's a piece of the letter where he says, at some point, we're gonna wake up and say, you know, there's $4 trillion effectively that's being locked up right now, um, and that you're gonna want that money in the system uh, and, and in a more productive Don't notice use. it right now so, because things are so flush. I was, you right. had me at the beginning. There's a lot going on because there's a lot going on because on one side, go ahead. 
You had me at the beginning where he was actually talking about business and debt and, and the economy. I was like, wow, maybe this is not going to be a ACA, Larry Fink, BlackRock uh, lesson in ESG virtue signaling. It's not going to be 66 pages of, of preaching. And I well, thought, wow, this is, this is pretty good. And, and, and I liked what he said about when Jamie Dimon looks at the amount of debt that we're taking on and what the Fed is doing and still predicts a boom for the next couple of years, I, th I think what it says is during the financial crisis, when you add demand because of a recession or whatever it is, you don't know when it's really going to come back. And if it, we, this is very unique because we know there is a pent up amount that's going to suck all of this right out of the system. It's really going to bounce back and maybe we can handle it because of that. And for him to be bullish all the way to 2023, I was like, wow, he's talking about business and rates and the economy, and maybe we can forego some of the preaching that, that uh, we hear from all the, all the CEOs these days, but he got to it eventually. But, but uh, well, that was a good letter, 66 pages, but you're not going to go over every page in your, in, in your interpretation, are you, Andrew, or, or, or are you going to I do can that? give you, the, there's a lot three more. Day, we I will say he, show. Okay. He's very, he is fearful of the possibility of what he describes as a Paul Volcker moment, uh, right. where interest rate, where, where, where the Fed so. decides they have, they have you, to act. And, and, if, and, and, he, and he says very clearly, if there is a Paul Volcker moment, that portends a recession. But he did say there's, it's there's different no, There's no way time. around it. He did kind of say it's different than the last financial crisis, because uh, it, this is a so, unprecedented in terms of the snapback in demand. Me, we're, we're, we already got six, we're at six percent unemployment already. That's amazing right. from where we were. So, ha having now studied these pages, <laughs> there's sort of two conflicting ideas going on. One Maybe is that good. we're going to have a great economy through 2023. Uh, given the amount of money that's being poured into the to, to the market, the other side of it is that longer term we have big, big, big problems, almost intractable problems. And I will also say that you know Jamie Dimon has always been very, very positive about America, and there is a, you know he still is you know a lot of the policy prescriptions are about how do you fix things. But I think when you really look at what he's talking about relative to what China's saying and everything else. And the fact that he's accepting it, he actually says this time is different in the context that, you know, we have always overcome our problems over, over, uh, over, over history uh, in, in America. And he actually says this time may be different, right. meaning maybe we won't. Politically. And so I, I that's, yeah. well, politically, but economically and all, right. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot in there. And so I think there's, there's, there's sort of two messages. There's a market, there's an immediate market message but there's a longer term sort of warning about what we really have to think about that you want the two sides to agree on policy. And that's something that we need to do to move forward to handle these big issues. You got to decide on which policies you're talking about. And each side has totally different remedies for that. So just saying we need to come together and, and do this. I mean, he, Jamie's always been a Democrat, just barely, he said. I'm not sure he's saying we just need to, to, you know, Republicans need to get on board with everything the Biden administration wants to do right now. He's not saying that, is he? No, no, no he's I, not I saying that either. He, that's what I mean. So I, we got to decide he, on which policies, whether it's small government, less taxation, more freedom, whether, you know, we, we're back to, the, to square one on deciding how to affect these things to compete with China. He goes through, a, um, you know, a, a pretty robust plan that, as you might imagine, talks about education. How do you get graduation rates up, not just across the country, but in inner cities? goes through the, the health care issues uh, in this country and the costs with health care, 
by the way, there's a mention of what J.P. Morgan's going to do uh, now that Haven, which was, of course, the package that was put together or the program put together between J.P. Morgan, Amazon, um, yeah. and Berkshire Hathaway, and talks about the efforts that the, that they're going to pursue there. They're, they're, the, you should read the letter if you're interested. Uh, re, you know, viewers out there, it, it's worth every second uh, because there's lots of wisdom in there, and also just a, a great sense from a, one of the great business managers uh, out there about what's going on in the world. Andrew, you mentioned he, he's worried about the Paul Volcker, Volcker moment if the Fed right. has to act. Is, is he worried about that or is he worried about what caused the Paul Volcker moment, which was massive inflation? And, I, mean, I think they, he's worried about Paul both. Volcker had to do I think he's he worried about both. And he, yeah, he, I think he's worried about both. And he does talk to some degree about the idea that that the metrics with, that we use, we collectively as a country and we talk about on this show, uh, the indexes and whatnot, uh, to represent inflation may not really capture what real inflation is. I agree with so. that 100 percent. Right. I've heard anecdotally is, so right. many stories about people yeah. who are willing to pay much more for things than you would ever anticipate. Things like used cars, different places. You know, you just start hearing some of those things welling up because people have money. They're able to pay for these things. They need these things. Um, I, I, yeah. I would share his concerns on yeah, that. Yeah, the 10 years still in bubble territory, absolutely, compared to where inflation and inflationary expectations right. Uh, are right now. It should be. But, but then to get right. to a Volcker moment, I mean, remember the prime was 21 that, and a half. Like we got a little breathing room. Right? Right. We got a little breathing room. We're at 1.6. We only got, we got 20, and, points, and, uh, 20 points to go. And, Not, uh, yeah. and one last note. <laughs> he says that the government desperately needs to spend more, the IRS needs to spend more to actually uh, right. try to be able to collect uh, some, some of these taxes. Next on Squawk Pod, vaccine passport or vaccine verification. Same thing, two very different impacts, according to pollster Frank Luntz. If you require a federal passport, people hear it as a mandate. They hear that Washington is collecting your information. That's not what they want. They don't have a problem with a vaccine verification. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. The White House is ruling out requiring federal vaccine passports in order to travel during and after the pandemic. Texas Governor Greg Abbott just banned them. And the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, made a similar move last week. Joining us right now to talk about the rhetoric and language around the vaccine is pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz. Frank has a new op-ed out on CNBC.com this morning. you got to go take a look at it. He argues that leaders should stop saying 
vaccine passport. Great to see you, Frank, this morning. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that when people hear the word passport, and only half of Americans have one, so for the other half, it's, it's a foreign concept to them. If you require a federal passport, people hear it as a mandate. They hear that Washington is collecting your information. That's not what they want. They don't have a problem with a vaccine verification or a certificate. That a passport is a formal document. It collects information in a formal way. And you've got a significant percentage of Americans who don't want that. The concept is supported by almost three to one, but not a Washington mandate. And this is so essential for the business community to hear this, because the words that you say will determine how your employees view what you've done as you come back to work. By using the language, and it, as you can see right there, 60% support it and 24% oppose it. But look at the difference between the Biden supporters and the Trump supporters. This is a very big deal. The De Beaumont Foundation has all of the survey research that we've been doing for the last four months on their website. I urge business leaders to go to it because we're providing a lexicon of how to communicate the principle of going back to work, back to travel, back to our lives, getting our freedoms back. And one more point, I give the Biden administration credit, first, for an incredible rollout where people are getting shots in arms at a, at a historic level. And to the Trump administration for, for providing the vaccines in the first place, for, for speeding up the process, that they cut, they cut the bureaucracy, but they didn't cut corners. And this is the kind of language that the still hesitant people need to hear to give them the confidence to get the vaccine. The idea that the virus is still dangerous, still impactful, still random, and can make a difference. Right. That they so, Frank, just, but let's, let's just talk about the language for a second. The phrase vaccine verification, you're suggesting the American public is in favor of the phrase vaccine passport they're against, even though I think we're on the same page and that there really isn't a distinction. If you're a business leader thinking about bringing people back uh, to work, uh, whether you're going to go back to 50%, 75%, 100%, hybrid, whatnot, you believe that you can um, have the support of your staff and team using the phrase verification, but not passport? Exactly. And it's this difference, Andrew, between a death tax and an estate tax. It's a difference between school choice and parental choice in education. It's a difference between a scholarship and a voucher. It's a difference between, to use the... Uh, the company that Donald Trump wants banned. It's the difference between Coke Light and Diet Coke. That a verification that that says to people that they carry it with them, it's not mandated, it's voluntary. And the verification merely states something that they can show others. A passport says the government, Washington has collected the information. A verification is something that you have to demonstrate voluntarily that you've been vaccinated. Right. And it's exactly what the American people want. Andrew, language in this case matters. And the right language is the difference between getting vaccinated and not getting vaccinated. Frankly, it's the difference between life and death. It really does matter. Frank, in terms of businesses and business leaders uh, mandating some kind of verification uh, on the way back to work or potentially verification, going into a stadium, getting on a plane, things like that, what kind of support do you think there really will be for that? 
ultimately? They will, ultimately, there's going to be about 15% of the population that's going to be opposed to it because there's going to be about 15% that refuse to get the vaccine. We're going to, be, we're going to come very close to herd immunity. And, and I think it's going to happen within the next 120 days. I don't think it's going to take until uh, 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 September for this to happen. But the idea, and you just showed right. with, and, and please, if you could pull up the words, because the words are what matters most here. The idea has significant support nationwide because all it is is showing people that you're safe, that they're safe, and it provides a sense right. of comfort, a sense of peace of mind. And yes, those words do matter. And the last thing, we will educate, not indoctrinate. This is very important also for the Biden administration to hear that right. if they make it voluntary, the public will follow. If they emphasize that 90% of doctors have been vaccinated, they will follow. And all of these details- Frank, are let, me, let me ask you this. There, there, I don't know if you saw it, Axios uh, uh, had a study that there, or rather, um, a, a, a survey, a poll, really, in your business uh, about uh, hesitation today, saying that a majority of those who want to wait and see about the vaccine are more inclined to take the Johnson & Johnson one dose than they are the Pfizer, um, with the number three one coming in as Moderna. Why do you think that is? Is that and about actually, brand? I, it's is that about, about brand? Uh, it is about brand, but I don't accept that information because I know that uh, the hesitancy among Trump people is more for the Johnson & Johnson. The hesitancy among the Biden people is more for the two vaccines rather than the one. It's different for different people. We have to personalize and individualize our language. We have to think not from what our perspective, but from the perspective of the people that we want vaccinated. And for business leaders, they have to put themselves in the minds and the concerns right. of their employees because that's what really matters. Not their perspective as the CEO, the perspective that people come to work and, and really bust their butts every single day in factories, in offices, because they're at the front line of this and the decisions that they make are going to affect all of us for the long term. Frank Luntz, always great to see you. Appreciate you bringing this news to us. It's important stuff. Thank you. Coming up, the rest of today's stories that got us talking and squawking, from crypto to Jeff Bezos on taxes to Hollywood's newest billionaire, another notch in the sculpting belt for the Kardashians. God bless them. What, what a family. But I'm still trying to figure it all out. Almost famous for being famous, right? This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box. Welcome back. We haven't done that in a while, Becky. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. So you, you didn't go anywhere. Uh, hopefully here on CNBC, I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. IPO is in the offing. It's going to be probably one of the biggest of the year. Coinbase reporting a blowout quarter ahead of its public debut. The 
company reported $1.8 billion in revenue for the quarter. It beat the $1.3 billion that it generated in revenue for all of 2020. Now, Coinbase reported 56 million users on its platform, generating $335 billion in trading volume for the quarter. It cited a surge in cryptocurrencies, as you would imagine, that's what they do, particularly Bitcoin, to new highs in the first quarter. Coinbase is led by founder and CEO Brian Armstrong. He plans to take that company uh, public on April 14th, that's next week, through a direct listing on the NASDAQ. It's poised to be, as I just mentioned, one of the largest listings of the year with a valuation some say could be as high as $100 billion. And interestingly, a huge part of their business has become institutional. So there was lots of questions, how much of this is retail? But if they become an institutional player, it perhaps changes the game and also changes the dynamic in terms of how people think about uh, the valuation of that company. So uh, lots to uh, keep your eyes on yeah. there. It, the, the expense side looks pretty good at Coinbase, <laughs> from, what I can, from what I can determine the, in terms of people that they've hired to much. answer the phones or answer questions oh. <laughs> or send out uh, tax information or anything. I, I think it might just be him. Uh, as a matter of fact, no, uh, that guy that no, we, there's a big, there's a big system. I, yes. there. Look, the, the big, know, the large, the joke, the it's large joke. question about Coinbase and the valuation of Coinbase over time is going to be whether just everybody else is gets into the same business. Whether right, right now they have almost a monopoly on trading, you know, Bitcoin and these and, and, and different cryptocurrencies. But if you told me that you know Fidelity was really going to do it and you could get on TD Ameritrade and you could do it here and you could do it there and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and everybody's actually trading the actual currencies that's that's the longer term sort of competitive question uh, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, ask some of those questions after this company the code is cool the, the, the code is very cool that what's it called a QR that thing with all the uh, you know that you can use it to look at a menu you can you know one of those so QR someone ha you have one of those for your wallet and someone else has one. So if you ever want to do anything, if you want to give, gift it to a kid or something like that, you just click on that thing and it's ready to go. You press one button and it goes and it happens. It's pretty neat. It's pretty neat the way uh, that, it, that it actually works. So their software is, is pretty amazing. I'll, I'll give them that. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said he supports raising the corporate tax rate because it does nothing to his company. But he stopped short of, uh, of backing President Biden's tax plan. He said Amazon supports the administration's bold uh, focus on investments in American infrastructure and said, in his words, we recognize this investment will require concessions from all sides, both on the specifics of what's included as well as how it gets paid for. We're supportive of a rise in the corporate tax rate. And I won't add that, that he then said, as long as you don't change any of the the tax loss carry forwards that we have, but the, the tax rate doesn't really matter uh, for Amazon, right? Last week, President Biden proposed. I, no, a I thought the same thing. Didn't you? Uh, it's like yeah, yeah. yeah it's like because he parsed okay, his words so the corporate carefully. Tax rate. It's okay to raise it. <laughs> right. right. You know. um, uh, President Biden proposed a two trillion dollar infrastructure package and a corporate uh, tax hike from 21 percent to 28 to pay for it. The president has repeatedly singled out Amazon for using loopholes in his words to uh, to not pay federal taxes, but Loopholes, okay, I, I guess you can That's, call it that. It is a loophole. The definition but of loophole. Yeah, the definition of loophole, but it's, it's the way that the tax system is set up for companies like Amazon right. that that's in the tax code that that's how much they owe. So 
I, I don't think the, the question that and, we haven't seen him weigh with, in on is if there's going to be a, a minimum a minimum right. corporate tax. Once right. there's a minimum corporate tax, right. if he's if he's actually in favor of that, which by the way he may very well be, might be. Um, he didn't. We don't. That would be a di- that would be a very different yeah. story, and then right. and then we wouldn't be but having yes. this conversation. That's why I say because he parsed it did, that way. So if he if he does say okay <laughs> yeah tax Amazon to give, give me an, an AMT of ten percent that would be big news. I don't think he's ready to say that, but I don't know. You're right. I don't. Who knows? Who knows? But I, I think the problem with this tax law, too, is that they're talking about raising rates, but they're talking about creating more loopholes or whatever you want to call it, incentives to do all kinds of other things. It just makes it more and more complicated, makes it more and more likely that corporations will not be paying that rate. Again, yeah. we, we, we've talked for a long time about trying to simplify the tax code for individuals and for corporations. What we've done is made it much more complicated yeah. and continue to do that because every lobbyist who wants some favor in there, every congressman who wants some uh, pet project in there that complicates things and makes it so that you have to raise rates even more so that you get more towards the revenue numbers that you're looking for. Yesterday, when Kevin Brady was on, Andrew kept pushing him on hiring 15,000 more agents. And Brady's pushback to you, Andrew, was doesn't matter how many you hire. It's so complicated. You're never going to get out. Which is which is actually I I will say and it's unfair for me to say now because he's not here. But I said on the air yesterday. The math, the math, he, he is wrong. He is definitively wrong on that. At the end of the day, we're going to see slower hiring. We're going to see less investment in the U.S. And I would predict we will see a second wave of U.S. companies inverting uh, or moving their headquarters overseas in the long run. That's why I think this is such a major mistake. To Becky's point that it is very complex right now. You, you, for every dollar you spend, you oh. probably get some money back. But it is Sure, First, maybe but we there, there is something. It. There is something. There's somewhere between you know 50 billion and 600 billion dollars of, of revenue right. that you could be picking up. That, and this is not money that's a function of loopholes. This is money that this is money that should be coming into the government. And if we actually could go collect even a, a, you know a portion of that money, it would change yeah. even the conversation we're having right now about rates. Right. I happen to agree with both arguments. I think you're right, right. Andrew, but I, I think uh, Brady's point is correct, too. I think on both those counts, you could hire more and try right. and um, make sure you're getting after people who are getting around things, but at the same time, simplify it so that it's, right. there's not so many gray areas. Kim Kardashian West is joining the Forbes list of billionaires. Forbes says that the 40-year-old's net worth is up in part thanks to her beauty line, KKW, and also because of her shapewear line, Skims. Her sister, Kylie Jenner, has dropped off the billionaire list. The 23-year-old is known for her Kylie Cosmetics line. Her current net worth is estimated at around $700 million. Joe? Awesome. What a country. There's still uh, some things that can be... What? I'm still... I, I, I was still trying... And God bless them. What, what a family. But I'm still trying to figure it all out. Um, almost famous Influence. for being famous. Almost famous for being famous, right? Almost, you get famous, mm-hmm. then you use the fame to, to do things, and then you become more famous, and it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Uh, it's probably too late for us to try that. Um, cosmetics, probably. Andrew? A lot of money in cosmetics. Shapewear line? A lot of men's cosmetics. What do you think? I have to be honest with you, but 20 years ago, I wanted to do a, a, a men's... Um, Men's cream. I was convinced. I had a friend who was in this. Oh, I, I thought actually thought shape, about it. shapewear line. You missed out. Well, you no, out. but I had a friend. I thought maybe I should get out of the journalism business and get in. Twenty years ago, if I'd done it, it oh, would have been, you know, there was an opportunity. Oh, 
<laughs> just I saying. Think you that chose the right path. I'm just Speak saying. No, no, I'm glad you're here. Really? I can't imagine my life without, uh, it, it would not, it definitely would, neither of our lives would be the same, would it? And that's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod, share Squawk Pod, and leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.